if you would turn in your Bibles and if you would stand with me as we respect the Word of God, we will read from Romans chapter 1, giving a broader context. I'll start in verse 18. Hear the Word of the Lord. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So ends the reading of God's word. May we be blessed as we study it together. You may be seated. If we are to rightly appreciate the gospel, if we would be overwhelmed at what God has done for us through the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, it must begin with a comprehension of the deceitfulness of sin. You will never appreciate the gospel until you've come to recognize just how sinful you really are. The Apostle Paul, the one that has written so much of the New Testament, declared in 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that, uh, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he adds, of whom I am foremost of all. Now we might look at Paul's life and say, well, he did some pretty rotten things. We recognize that. But you know what Paul was saying? He says, you know, the only heart I can really ever know for sure is my own. And when I look at my heart and I know the capacity that it has to sin, there is no greater sinner that I know than myself. And you know, when he says that, that allows him to now look to the grace and mercy of God and be overwhelmed by such grace and mercy, which he actually says in the very next verse. That grace and mercy was shown to him because of this very fact, that he recognized himself to be a sinner. Beloved, we will not appreciate the gospel as we ought until we understand the depth of sin, the deceitfulness of sin, the very depravity of sin. Jerry Bridges in his book, The Discipline of Grace, has rightly said, the gospel is meaningful for us only to the extent that we realize and acknowledge that we are still sinful. Now, many of us have been here for a long time, and I know you. I drink coffee with you, and we eat meals together, and we've gone and done things together. And, and I recognize that uh, uh, we have this, this kind of relationship that, that enables us to maybe sometimes overlook one another's shortcomings. And that's good to a certain extent. But do we take time to recognize that as, as delightful as our relationships are and as wonderful as you people are, 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 are I can't say this, are, all, are, whatever. 
all of you are, you're still sinners. We are still sinners. And sin is deceitful. And sin is is wanting to make itself look normal and, and acceptable. And sin is by its own nature deceitful and tricky and misleading and beguiling. And it can creep in. It does creep in even amongst the most noble of the saints. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, I'm sure you're familiar with this, we find God having created man and woman, and he created them to live in utter dependence upon him. And he created them to live exclusively for his glory. When we come to Genesis 3, we find that the two creatures kind of threw all of that off. They wanted to live independent of God, and they forgot about his glory, and they turned away from God. And where else was there for them to turn? If they turned away from God, they could only turn to themselves, the creature. Sin had entered the picture. Sometimes we read Genesis 3, and I think we oversimplify Genesis 3. It's like, well, we know, Pastor, you have the capacity to make everything complicated in anything we do. But Genesis 3 is not simply telling us where sin came from. And that's what we so often just pull from that text, where it comes from. But Genesis 3 reveals to us something else. It reveals to us the the, the, um, devious way in which sin operates within the human heart. Sin will speak to your heart. And we see that graphically portrayed in the statement there in Genesis 3, the most deceptive statement as sin always begins with a deception, did God really say? Now, I think any of us that have been on the earth for a little bit of time, even teenagers, know that uh, we often have to ask ourselves, we do that, like, I wonder, if, if does God really mean this? Do, do I really need to obey my parents right now? Do I really need to be filled with integrity in this moment at my job? Did God really say that subtle question, questioning the authority of God in your life, the one who created you? Well, for Adam and Eve, that would not only lead to their downfall, but it would bring all of humanity down to a path of what we refer to as depravity. Now, when we speak of human depravity, many people immediately opt for defining it as meaning as bad as we can be, that man is as bad as he can be. And we think of then like serial killers and rapists and maybe a political figure like Hitler who commanded the death of millions of people. And we say those people are the depraved ones. Those are the examples of the very worst of humanity. But that's not what the Bible means when it speaks of depravity. Human depravity, according to the scriptures, does not mean that a person is as bad as he can be. It means that a person is as bad off as he can be because of his sin. When Adam and Eve ultimately questioned the authority of God, it was on the premise that God was maybe keeping something from them. You remember this? That that they, they were being kept from experiencing all that they should experience 
You can recall the words of Satan as he sought to deceive Eve when he said in Genesis 3, 5, For God knows, for God knows, Eve, that in the day that you eat from it that forbidden fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, sometimes I wonder if even that first phrase, how many of us would really like to be like God? I've got enough problems of my own that I can't solve, you know. You know, sometimes we don't ask the right questions. And the question that ought to be asked here is, where's the deceit in the statement that Satan made? Where is the deceit? God had forbidden them to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. No deceit in that. God had said that in the day you eat of it, it will, you will die. Satan questioned, though, whether or not they would really die if they ate it. And then Satan brought in this deception, saying that when they ate of the forbidden fruit, they will have something. They will gain something. They will have the knowledge of good and evil. But what is the deceit? The deceit, beloved, is the unintended consequences of disobeying the command of God. Do you know there's always unintended consequences? You may think you know what the consequences are for disobeying God. Even some of the children, and when we were children, you may have disobeyed your parents, and you had no idea what was going to come as a result of that. There's always a, uh, consequences for disobeying God. For it is true that upon eating the forbidden fruit, the eyes of Adam and Eve were opened, and they did recognize the distinction between good and evil, even to the point that they immediately felt what? Shame. However, what Satan failed to communicate to them, and thus serves as the basis of his deceit, is this, that knowing good, they would be unable to do it. And knowing evil, they'd be unable to resist it. He didn't tell them that. Yes, they knew good. Woohoo! But I can't do it. Yes, we, they would know evil. But I'm now drawn to only that. This, my friends, is the essence of human depravity. That knowing good, we are in and of ourselves unable and often unwilling to do it. And knowing evil, we simply are drawn to it like a moth to the flame. This places us in a circumstance of being as bad off, bad off as we can possibly be. For the wages of sin, as you recall, what you earn for sinning is what? Death, Romans 6.23. And death is not a ceasing to exist. Rather, it is an eternal separation from the blissful presence of the living God so that you now eternally endure what your sins deserve. And what do your sins deserve? The wrath of God. And that, my friends, is what Paul is addressing here in Romans chapter 1 and beyond. As we are all very familiar, there's not one of us in this room that is exempt from this condition of being as bad off as we can possibly be, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is depravity. This is us as bad off as we can be. Now, last week, we began looking at verses 19 and 20, trying to answer that question, why is there this wrath? Why is God so angry at sin? Of course, verse 18 speaks of that wrath. 
This is the fifth point of our larger outline of Romans 1, 15 through 32. Remember that in verse 18, the Apostle Paul plainly speaks that unsaved people by their nature, this is what unsaved people do. Every unsaved person suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. They try to hold down the truth. They try to modify the truth, ignore the truth, pretend the truth isn't there. Whatever they have to do to not consider the truth. They disparage it. They try to destroy it. Paul defines such people in Romans 1.18 as being both ungodly, that is, without God, acting as if there is no God in their life, and also unrighteous, which we noted is not doing right things by way of their relationship to others. Well, what does this lifestyle of unrighteousness that brings the deserved wrath of God look like? Well, that's what we're looking at in verses 19 through 23. And we indicated that there are at least four reasons why the wrath of God is deserved. And last week, we looked at the first two of those. And we said, first, that suppressors of the truth reject the reality of God. Suppressors of the truth reject the reality of God. First, this rejection is a denial of God's existence. This is found in that phrase in verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Despite any protests to the contrary, despite any of the philosophical arguments that are formulated to deny it, despite any twisted interpretation that affords a person to believe in some so-called naturalistic explanations for the origin of all things apart from God, the scriptures unequivocally state that every single human being knows there is one true God because God himself placed it it says within them there's a God consciousness within every person and has made it evident to them by what's around and by this we can conclude that there is no such thing as an atheist because the atheist knows there is in fact a God and there is no such thing as an agnostic one who is without knowledge or who believes there's not enough or sufficient knowledge to know if God truly exists because verse 19 tells us God has provided more than enough evidence to come to the conclusion of his existence. For the agnostic to claim that he does not have enough knowledge to know that there's a God impugns the very character of God who has revealed himself to everyone. And so, as we noted, rather than the Greek term agnostic, they are more rightly described by the Latin term ignoramuses, willfully ignorant. Well, we also noted, secondly, that suppressors of the truth reject the revelation of God in verse 20. The suppressors of truth deny, they reject that this God has actually, through nature and through what we call general revelation, through creation itself, affords enough information for every single person to know that there is a God, and specifically that there's a God who is the creator and the sustainer and the provider of all living things. Psalm 146, Lord, you open your hands and satisfy the desire of every living thing, every food, every meal that you eat. You think it was provided by Walmart. You think you bought it because, well, J.B. Hunt gave you a paycheck. Ultimately, God is the one that gave that to you. He opens his hand and satisfies the desire of every living thing. 
So clear is God's revelation even in creation. So understandable, it says in verse 20, is God's revelation in creation that the suppressors of the truth who live in their unrighteousness, they have no excuse. They have no legal defense. They can give no apology to present in that final day, hey God, I'm sorry, I just really didn't know if you were there or not. Well, this brings us to the third of our reasons in our new material today as to why God's wrath is deserved by unbelievers. Namely, that suppressors of the truth reject, reject the respect due to God, verses 21 and 22. Sinful, ungodly, unrighteous humanity deserves the wrath of God, Paul says, because even as they have the opportunity to know God exists through what has been made, they willfully reject him. And in their rejection, they do not give him the respect, the honor, and the gratitude due to him. Look at verse 21. For even though, for even though they knew God, that's a statement taking us right back to verse 19. They already know God. God's made it evident within them. God's made it evident to them. Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. This tells us that sinners simply and intentionally refuse to respect God by choice. It's not an accident. It's not, well, I didn't know. In spite of all the evidence clearly given to them, sinners would rather choose to ignore it, to turn their backs on God, and in so doing, fail to respect God for who he is. Again, the word of God says that the, those who suppress the truth actually know there's a God. They know him definitively as creator. There's not one person, not Carl Sagan, the American astronomer and science communicator, not the American astrophysicist and author Neil deGrasse Tyson, not the famed British evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins. There's no one who is able to honestly deny God as the creator or themselves as being but creatures. When such people dishonestly deny that God is the creator, what are they doing? They're disrespecting God. It's like being having somebody in a room. I don't know if you've ever had this done to you. I'm sure none of you have ever done this to somebody else. When there's somebody in the room and they pretend you don't even exist. They look the other way. They intentionally will not make eye contact with you. That's what sinners do to God. They dishonor and disrespect God. Paul tells us in verses 21 and 22 three things that are true of these suppressors of truth that leads them. What does this disrespect of God look like? Well, first of all, suppressors of the truth are dishonoring God. They, they show him no honor. In spite of God's eternal power, in spite of all that he reveals of his divine nature that's put on display through creation, it says in verse 21 that they, that is the ungodly and unrighteous suppressors of truth, who actually do know God, willfully choose not to honor God for who he is. That is, they do not regard him. They do not respect him. This is an indictment. If Paul was in a, court, a courtroom, he had just said, there is no defense, there is no legal apology that men can give by which they can say, I don't know you exist, God. And then Paul turns around and says, but I will lay a legal char a charge against all of those who say such things. 
that while every person knows there is a God, you have refused to truly honor, regard, and respect, and praise him for who he is. The word honor in the Greek is the verb doxo, and it actually is better translated as glorify. We get the word doxology, where we're giving praise and, and glory to God. In some translations, I think the LA, uh, Legacy Standard Bible actually uses the word they choose not to glorify him as God. This is one of the characteristics that truth suppressors use. They intentionally fail to give God the glory and the honor due to him as the one who not only created all things in the space of six days and all very good, but who also specifically created them to, move, to live and move and have their being. The verb honor or glorify is an aorist verb in the Greek, which simply means this is a determined choice. It's not like it's just uh, willy-nilly. They choose not to honor God. It is as if they are saying, in effect, I will not glorify God. And we see this everywhere. People who just simply by their lives do not glorify God. What are they doing? They're suppressing the truth in their unrighteousness. Beloved, this is the antithesis. This is the, the opposite of how every creature is to respond to God. The scriptures are replete with call after call and command after command. Would you please, the scriptures cry out, honor and glorify God. Psalm, 120, Psalm 29 verses 1 and 2 says, Ascribe to the Lord, sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Did you wake up with that on your hit mind? That your life, you were created to be dependent upon the creator and to give glory to God. We have been created to glorify God, to honor him, to acknowledge his presence, to praise him for his provisions in our life. We often sing a hymn in this church by St. Francis of Assisi, written around 1200, so it's one of those really old hymns, right? All creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing, Alleluia, Alleluia, meaning praise the Lord, praise the Lord. When was the last time you went out your back door and you saw the squirrels squirreling and the birds birding and, and you said, all creatures, sing with me. Praise the Lord. You know what? They would join you. In the New Testament, we read something quite similar in the words of 1 Corinthians 10.31, very familiar, but it says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all things for what? For the glory, to the glory of God. Anyone who fails to acknowledge, anyone who fails to praise God in all he or she does is by definition a suppressor of the truth. How many times can we who claim to be professors of the truth are guilty of acting like suppressors of the truth when we fail to regard and to proclaim the glory of God that's due his name? Oh, I know we all in this room probably say, yeah, I'm here. I'm, I'm here. I'm glorifying God. But will you be doing it at 3 p.m. today? Will you be doing it at 9 p.m. when you lay your head on your pillow Will you do it tomorrow morning? 
we see a glimpse of how all creatures and even the host of heaven will labor to glorify and respect God for all eternity. John pulls back the veil for us in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. And we heard this earlier from uh, another section, but notice what it says in Revelation 4, 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive what? Glory and honor and power for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. We begin, notice what this says, we begin with what? That God created everything and everyone. Isn't that where Paul started? The reason why sinners deserve the wrath of God is they fail at the most fundamental starting place. In the beginning, God created. What makes the unbeliever guilty then is their willful sin not to acknowledge God as their creator and not to give him the glory he deserves. And this amounts to the same sin of pride that brought Satan down from heaven. As a result of this pride, unbelievers are not merely guilty, but they actually invite and deserve and receive the wrath of God unless they repent. But there's more. Suppressors of the truth not only dishonor God, they also are dismissive of God. In addition to this failure to glorify God, to acknowledge his power to create and sustain, suppressors of the truth fail to, it says in our text now, give thanks to God as befitting a glorious and benevolent being. God is to be both glorified, Paul says, and he is to be thanked. And by who? Every single person. Paul's not addressing the saints at Rome in this moment. He already assumes they're doing what? Glorifying God and giving thanks. He's now focused on those who have not believed. He says you are failing. God is to be both glorified as well as thanked by every person. Why is it then that so many people do not glorify and fail to give thanks to God? We already know the answer. It's because they're, they're suppressing the truth. They do not want to hear it. They're not going to a, a church that's proclaiming the word of God faithfully by which they would hear that truth. They may not go to a church at all, or they may go to a church where they, they just tell them things that, will make them feel good, or, or they're getting told some stories and anecdotes of things. To fail to give thanks to God for all that he has provided, though, invites the wrath of God. What do we as humans have that has not been provided for us? We lack the power to create anything. Do you know in reality, you know, we always, we pride, we, we take a great joy in saying that man, he's a self-made man. Biblically, there's no such thing as a self-made man. To be sure, we can reassemble and refashion things, often wonderful things, but all the elements to anything we create, well, they've already been put into existence by someone bigger, grander, and greater than any human being. I know that we have some marvelous cooks in our church, and I'm very grateful for them, but that means I have to keep riding my bike. 
But I can confidently say this. I'm just picking this one thing. I can confidently say that there's not one of our great cooks in this church who has ever truly made a pie from scratch. To be able to make a pie from scratch would mean that you have the ability to create a universe in which everything that you needed to make the pie would be in existence. And I don't think, and some of you ladies are amazing, but you're not that amazing. And I'm not trying to put down, we got some guys that can really cook too, so okay. By way of application, this is an important application. The next time you're baking, or in, the, in my case, partaking of some wonderfully made baked goods, remember to thank God for providing everything necessary for that baker to assemble the ingredients in such a tasty way. Isn't that what Paul is getting at? I mean, in a minor way, you know God has created everything. And so you're going to say, God, you are so awesome to make all of these ingredients that taste so wonderful when my wife puts them together for me. Thank you, Lord. Even our mental creations, beloved, come from a mind that's been given to us from God. And so every music composition, every poem that we write, every computation we formulate on our Excel spreadsheets, every dance that's choreographed, and every game that is developed all comes from God who enabled you to put those things together. And yet so many filled with sinful pride and arrogance, maliciously fancies that they have created something. And beloved, when this is your mentality, then you come to believe that, well, you're a little God. You have the right to, to make and disperse and dispose of things as you choose. And yet the scripture declares unequivocally that our time and our intellect, our abilities, our skills, even our achievements, they are all given to us. Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, 7 said it this way, What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Meaning, why do you boast as though you somehow are God and have made these things? If we fail to thank God for what he has provided for us in this life, we display ingratitude to the God who made all things possible. And let me tell you, when you start failing at high levels to thank God for what he's done, you're going to meet with a very dreaded end. For example, in Daniel 4, 29-32, consider how this all worked for a pagan king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. He had had a dream telling him about what would happen to his kingdom that it would be great and glorious. He was even told what he was going to do, but he kind of ignored all of that part. Well, then we read what happens. Twelve months after having this dream, when it would say that you're going to build up Babylon because of what I, the Lord, have given to you, the twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great? which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty, whose glory should have it been for? The Lord's. He was taking credit for what he believed he accomplished in himself apart from the living God. But we read on. 
while the word, can you imagine? I'm so great. I've done these things. While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice from heaven came saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, so, declared sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle. How many of you have ever eaten grass before? It's not that good. Not like a prime rib. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize, until you acknowledge, until you honor, until you glorify that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows, on, uh, bestows it on whomever he wishes. Don't ever tempt God to do that to you. Yeah, well, he doesn't do that today, does he? You can take that chance. We ought to praise God that he does not dramatically or so dramatically punish our own bits of prideful arrogance. However, those who fail to thank God, there are times, even now, because the scripture says the wrath of God is now revealed, they will suffer God's wrath. And if they do not repent and turn to Christ, there's a day that's coming when it will lead them not to seven years of eating grass like Nebuchadnezzar, but to an eternal punishment for their arrogance and ingratitude. And I know that there may be some who are thinking, hey, wait a minute, that seems like an awfully harsh sentence for simply not being thankful. That's because you don't understand the deceitfulness of sin. That's because you don't understand how sinful, how rebellious, how every single sin you commit, every single sin is an act of high treason against the living God. If you think that that's too harsh, then you do not understand the sinfulness of sin. You do not comprehend the depth of sin. You do not understand the deceitfulness of sin that leads you to experience the wrath of God but it's a wrath of God that you may be rescued from if you will but look to and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as the remedy to that wrath, trusting that Jesus bore your wrath in, in, bore your wrath in, your pla uh, in your place on the cross and that he did so so that you might now know and live and delight and glorify and thank God. But it all begins with each of us realizing this, that we are utterly dependent upon God. Every moment we're dependent upon God. And you know something that I'm learning? You, you start out dependent and you don't know it because you're a little kid and you just don't really, you're really tiny. It's all done for you. And then as a little kid, you start growing up and all you want to do is what? I wanted to be independent. I want to do it myself. I can take care of everything. Leave me alone, mom and dad. I've got it all squared away. And then the older you get, you start realizing, you know, I liked all of this independence, but now I can't control this. My own body is, is now attacking me, you know, and, and, and I realize that I can't even control this body that I live in. Amazingly, that we who are the most complex of all of God's creation, did you know that? We are the most complex of all of God's creation, are purposed by God to be the most dependent. You know I have rescue raccoons, and there's some cold weather a few weeks ago, right? Like, how are these raccoons ever going to survive? God's made it so that they'll do it. They, they just do it. 
Man, if I had to lay out in that doghouse in minus five degrees, I wouldn't be preaching to you today. I'm dependent. I saw a video of a baby giraffe being born. Consider being a baby giraffe. You begin your life with a six and a half foot drop from mom to the ground. That would kill any human baby. Within an hour or so, that baby giraffe is standing up and, and walking over and partaking of its mother's milk. Just a matter of hours. A newborn human baby, the most complex of all of God's creatures, can't do any of that. And yet sinful men refuse to respect God and give thanks to him for providing the means by which we've been born, that we're cared for. Sometimes I wonder how any of us ever survived childhood at all. I mean, all the things that could go wrong, and yet God, God gets us through. And good parents, right? When we fail to give thanks to God for all things, we are rejecting him. We are dishonoring him and dismissing him. This is the nature of truth suppressors. And beloved, it ought not to be the practice of those of us who know the truth by means of Jesus. But there's a third thing. Suppressors of truth are, and this comes back to where we started, they're simply depraved. They are as bad off as they can possibly be. Remember that our basic definition of human depravity is just that. We are as bad off as we can be because of sin. Sin affects everything about our humanity. It affects our minds, our intellect, our wills, our heart, our soul. It affects our bodies, our physical bodies. Nothing is untouched. Nothing is untainted by sin. And remember that sin invites the wrath of God. Since human depravity lost in uh, since depraved humanity lost in sin would rather reject the reality of God, reject the revelation of God, would choose to disrespect rather than glorify God and give thanks to God, humanity has to come up with some other explanation as to how we got here. How do things work? Well, we have these fine institutions of higher education, right, that tell us how all of this works. But this is what happens. When a person rejects the truth clearly stated in Scripture, clearly revealed through creation, then he must fashion his own truth. He must reject a true reality and substitute a reality of his own making, and that reality will always be a false reality. Reasonable people recognize the universe and all that it contains had to come from somewhere. Even most secular scientists have had to come from somewhere, right? Well, since this is so, there must be a reasonable explanation for how it all began and how it has all come about to be as we find it. And apart from the Bible's explanation of how God brought all of this about, people exert so much energy, spend so much money and resources seeking what? What are they seeking? What are our institutions like the University of Arkansas and Harvard and, and, uh, and UCSD, whatever, what are they spending so much? time doing they're trying to find explanations that are godless let me try to find a way that i can convince you that there is no god what are they doing they're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness and yet here's the thing i went to one of those schools and i found it so very dissatisfying 
Because everything's constantly in flux and changing and new ideas and new explanations. Because they cannot adequately explain things. And why can't they ex adequately explain things? Because the very intellect they use to come up with their flawed answers come from flawed minds. There is a mental gymnastics that humanity has engaged in throughout history in order to explain away the supernatural or the divine. But as people strive more and more to su support their naturalistic theories, it only leads to this. It only leads them to an increasing distance between what they now think is true and what is truly true. And so this gulf begins to form. Paul addresses this always dissatisfying and incomplete exercise of scientists and philosophers at the end of verse 21 into, the ver into verse 22. Notice how Paul describes it. He says, because they've ignored God, because they don't give thanks to God, because they won't glorify God, this is what happens to them. They became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Oh, they professed to be wise, but... They became what? Fools. Suppressors of the truth search for wisdom by means of human, that is, their own, it says here, speculation. Such speculations, reasonings, rationales that never satisfy. Beloved, it is ridiculous for us to think that natural man whose mind rejects the creator can ever understand the supernatural. So they'll mock us for believing in the supernatural. And instead of feeling like, oh, wow, they, they must know something, they know nothing. They've only got half the picture. And the picture that they have half of, they're, they're, they're writing over with crayons and, and, and marking up because now they can't even see what natural revelation is telling them anymore. Human reasoning will theorize and will always then be inadequate to understand what only the supernatural has to tell us. Honest astrophysicists and biologists and medical doctors, I, I get chances to listen to them. I'm always amazed that if they're honest, they will often quip that with all that they know in their respective fields, they will say there's so much that they do not know. And there's so much wonder out there in the universe. There's so much wonder in, the, in life and in the body. And on top of this, to interject the supernatural and spiritual realms, how could a natural man ever comprehend that? It is irrational to think that natural man would ever understand the spiritual world. Even as 1 Corinthians 2.14 reminds us, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Because he's become foolish, so he looks at anything that is actually true as foolishness, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. This leads then to natural man, the unbeliever, the suppressors of truth, to vain attempts at arriving to truth from ap apart from Scripture, outside of God's revelation. There's enough there for them to know there is a God, but then they reject getting any further information from the word of God. And when this happens, it only results in those who are seeking truth apart from God to become increasingly spiritually calloused. You know, we've heard the phrase, nature abhors a vacuum. Have you heard that before? Well, even as nature abhors a vacuum, the heart and mind not filled with the truth of God will be filled with something else. 
If you do not fill your mind with the truth of God, it will be filled with something else. And if it's not the truth of God, then it's not the truth. Such a state of becoming spiritually calloused and having one's mind filled with the world's untruths is part of the revelation of God's wrath. In other words, if you want to immerse yourself in untruth, then guess what? You will get it, and you will be filled with more and more untruth that leads you further and further away from God. Oh, you profess to be wise, but how foolish you are. As humanity has found ways to ignore the truths of Scripture and devote themselves to learning and studying false truths, they have found themselves only increasingly uh, to only to increase in their corrupt alternatives to the truth. As a result, the fallen world becomes more and more sinful. It has been deceived by sin. Beloved, the history of the world is not evolutionary; it's de-evolutionary. The world and all it contains is not evolving at all. The scriptures say everything is devolving. It is not that this world is getting better. Oh, I'm amazed that I can tell a little machine to turn on my lights. I wonder what David would have thought. Yeah, Alexa, turn on my lights. But that doesn't mean I'm making the world better. It's not becoming better. It's growing worse. How do I know this? The word of God tells me we started off in perfection. The Garden of Eden was perfect. And it has become now this world since the fall increasingly imperfect into our present. And the scripture says it will continue to grow worse and worse until God finally says, I'll put an end to it. Every day we see the increasing spiritual blindness which has led to the increasing of moral depravity. The more humans reject and move away from God, the more immorality, the more godless values have increased. This is what Paul meant when he makes the statement there that their thoughts have become futile, he says. That is vain. They're empty. They're devoid of truth. When something is devoid of truth, it makes them what? Well, Paul says they become futile, empty in their speculations. And when you don't know anything, what are you called? A fool. They become foolish. Their foolish hearts, it says, were darkened. It's a passive verb. Their, their, their foolish hearts, because they chose to, to disrespect God and not thank God and glorify God, they want to find a, a, a way of explaining this life apart from God. Well, God says, fine, then I'm going to darken your soul. They, did, they, they, they were darkened, it says. Something happened to them. They were given this darkness by God as an evidence of his wrath. That's how the wrath of God is revealed against them. Since they will not glorify and give thanks to God, God causes them to delve into deeper and deeper spiritual darkness. Say, well, how is that fair? But you might recall, this is nothing new with the way God does things. There was an incident in the book of Exodus. You remember a man by the name of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh had a hard time with God. He didn't want to do what God had commanded the Israelites and had commanded him. And the scriptures say in the book of Exodus on a couple of occasions that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And God said, okay, Pharaoh, you want to disrespect me? 
then everything changes and it says that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. So here it is. The heart that turns away from God because of his own sin will be turned further away from God, further darkened in his understanding, and that's how the wrath of God is being revealed today against all unrighteousness and ungodliness. The fool becomes increasingly foolish. The unrighteous becomes increasingly unrighteous. The sinful become increasingly sinful. This means that our fallen world will continue to fall deeper and deeper into futile and foolish thinking. And as believers, we will or at least should become less and less comfortable in this world because it is not anything like what God says it should be. In verse 22, we see the, the conflicted state of unbelievers find, as, they find themselves, as they find themselves while they profess and think themselves to be so wise and understanding they are in fact fools. Rather than becoming wise by their godless speculations, they became fools. Their refusal to acknowledge God for who he is and what he has done to fail to give him glory deserves uh, you could give him the glory he deserves leads them to a worldview that becomes increasingly hostile, increasingly rebellious against the truth as presented in Scripture. Is that not what we see today? But the foolish speculations of the fallen world can be incredibly seductive. That's the problem. The, the, the way that all of this is presented to us, it can be extraordinarily deceptive. The fallen world calls people to tolerate most any and all lifestyle choices, declaring that it is what? It's the most loving thing you can do. Just let people be people and let people love however they want to love. As believers, we can be tempted to think that such toleration is a virtue. To be sure, believers are called, listen, to tolerate one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And we are called to exercise great patience with an unbelieving world. But we, if we misapply this idea of tolerance, as many churches have today, we find Christians tolerating and Christians endorsing sinful lifestyle choices and sexual immorality that run contrary to God's word. And I say simply this, beloved, we must never speculate on anything God has made clear in Scripture. The church must always be on guard. And so Paul is so concerned about the church tolerating the values of the world that he wrote this to the church at Colossae in Colossians 2.8. This, listen, it says, see to it, this is to a church, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Either Christ has your principles, Christ is your directive, or this world will be. The secular worldview embraces, the secular worldview celebrates human depravity. Just read Romans 1.32, that not only, although they know God has written all of these, these ordinances against those who practice such wicked things, these people celebrate it, and they give hearty approval to those who join them in it. In other words, they are as bad off as they can be because of their sin. And so they choose to dive deeper and deeper into sin. This invites the wrath of God. But there's yet one more thing here. Suppressors of the truth reject the reverence of God. Verse 23. 
and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. If you reject God's existence, if you reject his revelation, if you reject to give him the respect due his name, thinking that you know better, well, then you have to come up with a God of your own. You're going to have to come up with something of your own, a, a God in some other image than the true God. Paul reveals how the foolishness of men who have rejected God is put on display. Verse 23 begins with a conjunction, that little word, and. It's linking it to the previous thought of those who have become fools. This is what fools do. You want to know what a fool looks like? Here it is. A fool exchanges... That word exchange means to modify, to definitively alter the glory, the splendor, the majesty of the incorruptible, that is the imperishable and immortal God, and they exchange in the place of God an image or likeness made in corruptible or perishable man and of birds and four-footed animals and creepy crawly things. The word exchange literally means to make otherwise. I'm trying to make God other than what he really is. It speaks of the idea of replacing one thing with something else. So in addition to the ungodly not glorifying God, in addition to the ungodly not giving thanks to God and having become foolish in their hearts and thinking, they now become idolaters. They are now worshiping something that they believe they created themselves. By the way, this would be a violation of both the first and second commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 through 5, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water or under the earth. And yet Paul tells us every unbeliever exchanges. They've changed the glory and perfections of God for their own idolatrous making. And what strikes me, and I want you to note this, is where does man start? If I'm going to replace God, if I'm going to come up with an explanation that doesn't demand God, where's the, what's the first thing I might look to in order to, to be God? Isn't that what the text tells us? The text tells us that he has exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the likeness of corruptible Self is the true object of worship for the unbeliever. For the unbeliever, it is, not, it is always about his own glory, his own honor, his own praise, his own well-being, rather than the one true God. Go even further and make a God with your own hands, creating now images of birds and four-footed animals and the creepy crawly things that would make some of us shudder. I hate the creepy crawly things. Such idols were common among the pagans in the ancient world, gods which according to the word of God are no gods at all, and yet we still are doing it. I always find it fascinating that uh, what's happening, we're going to have a Super Bowl Sunday, and we follow all of our favorite sports teams, and what are most of them named after? 
animals, right? Or glorious men, right? We have chiefs and we have ravens and we have all these. I guess only if you're a New Orleans fan, you're okay because those are the saints, right? It's important to note from verse 23, the obvious downward spiral, though. That's really what captured my attention. It starts, that happens when the hearts of people reject the general revelation of God. Once they do that, man starts with himself. He starts to worship himself, but it devolves so that he creates idols out of the birds and the four-footed things, and he ends up worshiping the worm. You see the spiral? The point is, beloved, a denial of God always leads to the defilement of life, whether morally, spiritually, or physically. The denial of God always leads to defilement of life. Paul will speak about this in the following verses, but at its core, what we are seeing here and what we will find in the rest of the chapter is man's aversion to God leads to his diversion from God, which ultimately leads to his perversion before God. And then this again explains why the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. To bring this to a conclusion, Romans 1:18 through 23 tells us that God has revealed himself to everyone he's created. Through creation itself, God has shown humanity his power and his intelligence. God has written his moral code within, within each one, yet humanity because of sin, chooses to go another direction and rejects the creator. In arrogance, sinners become, come to believe that they know better than the one who created them. Therefore, they seek to rewrite God's moral code within them. And they replace it with a code of their own making. We're seeing that in our world right now, and that's not a very pretty thing. They're creating a God, the God of self, that justifies their living in ways contrary to God. And beloved, the final analysis is this. All such things invite the wrath of God upon humanity. If you replace God and replace his ways with ourselves and our ways, look out. As believers, let us make every effort not to be seduced then by the world's philosophies, not to be seduced by man-made gods around us. Let us be diligent then in our efforts to reach the lost who are still in that depravity. And how can we reach them? What can we do for people who are so incredibly lost and they're moving further and further and further away from sin in ourselves? It is a lost cause. We have nothing with which to bring them back, save for one thing, something that Paul mentioned back in verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation, the power of God that rescues, the power of God that delivers from all that invites the wrath of God. And so when we start thinking in those terms, I have something that remedies the wrath of God. And it's not mine, it's what Jesus Christ has done. That big word propitiation, satisfying the, the, the righteous anger of God through his death on the cross. 
May we be constant professors of the truth and pray that the Spirit of God will use even our feeble proclamations to convert hearts and minds to the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord and he is the Savior, the Deliverer, the Rescuer. Those who suppress the truth do so by living unrighteously. This means that those of us who profess the truth must do so by living righteously. Let us proclaim the reality, the revelation, the respect, and the reverence due to our God. As Asaph penned by commission of King David in 1 Chronicles 16, 24 through 29, to give thanks to the Lord, may this be our desire to tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He, is, he also is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, you families of the people. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your greatness. We thank you that you are the creator. We thank you that you have so graciously revealed the truth that you are creator through even that which has been made. And we delight in that. We rejoice in being able to see your design and your purpose even in the things which were made. But Father, we give you so much greater praise that you've revealed so much more in and through your written word, and most especially through the living word, your son, Jesus Christ. May we delight to know him and to know him better. Even as Jesus proclaimed, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Father, may not any one of us be content with what we know about Christ. May we desire to know more. That even with all that we know and, the, and what we know is being so wonderfully uh, sufficient to bring us into your eternal glory, may we delight to know more. May we be like the angels who long to look into the things of salvation. May we never grow weary. May that truth fill our hearts and minds so much that it leaks out of us in our everyday conversations, not only with believers but with unbelievers. And Father God, we pray for the grace. And we pray for the moving of your spirit within our own hearts, that we would be effective communicators of the gospel that will save, deliver people from the wrath of God. So, Father, we commit ourselves to you to that end. Pray that you will fill our hearts and minds, that our lives will be lived out to your glory and your praise. We ask this in Jesus' name.